Welcome to Your Money Story. I'm Dawn Thomas, a mother of three, financial advisor by day, and a PhD candidate studying the experience of Generation Z with the superannuation system. This podcast provides a platform for stories that are underrepresented. Everyone's money story is unique. My guests are people who conduct their lives with purpose, authenticity, and are not afraid of being different. They stand out within their industries for being themselves. I hope their journeys inspire you to harness your own gifts and talents. I'm a believer of living your truth each day. Let's change how the story ends. We acknowledge the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation as the traditional custodians of this country and its waters and where this podcast is recorded on, stands on Noongar country. We pay our respects to Noongar elders, past and present, and acknowledge their wisdom and advice. The information discussed in this podcast does not take into account your personal and financial objectives and situation. Before acting on any information discussed here, you should consider its appropriateness, having regard to your objectives, needs, and financial situation. Episode, we discuss intergenerational financial considerations with the Money Sandwich author, Mark Bynham. We discuss how the sandwich generation, who are people in their 50s to 70s, have increased challenges due to looking after aging parents or assisting their children. Mark shares how people of all ages can be better prepared for their financial futures. Mark is also a speaker and a podcaster. He has had over 30 years of experience as a financial advisor and has provided prominent industry representation. He is an advocate of improving financial literacy in Australia and is now assisting the community by providing financial coaching. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me on your show, Dawn. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Mark, what we have in common is that we have a passion for a particular group of people in Australia um, that we feel be helped more, um, supported more through their journey. And that is the, you know, the retirees, the, the people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, getting up to that point. Uh, but you've taken it uh, further in the way that you, you've launched a book, you've got a podcast, you've got resources that are specific to people in their 50s and 60s or retirees. Why did you select that group as the special group of people that you want to turn your attention to? Well, it's 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 a bit like when as advisors, um, and now I'm, I'm now just coaching, but you sort of get drawn to your peers uh, mm. because pretty well you're doing, you've got the same problems in your own life, and you so you absolutely relate to your clients with a similar age. And I'm 61 now, so... I absolutely get the issues of adult children, um, your try or even elderly parents on the other side, and that's why mm. the book was called the Money Sandwich because it's a sandwich generation where we're sort of sandwiched in between adult children and elderly parents, and 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 trying to actually think about retirement on the horizon yourself. And I also should say retirement, actually financial freedom, because what I actually am finding, and you, I'm sure you're the same. Mm. A lot of people. Uh, happy to have the financial freedom, but actually enjoy work. So why should they stop? And it's about choices as well, right? Mm. I think if it's in the midst of it, when you've seen clients that are sandwiched between those two generations, Mm. the amount of pressure on them is immense. You know, if you think about coming up to, you've worked all your life, you've done everything for your family. You think that it comes a point where you actually get to enjoy yourself. But this sandwich generation hasn't caught a break. You know, it's either kids living longer with them, or parents aging and having to deal with really difficult decisions around age care. Western Australia hasn't had the COVID situation like we have in Sydney mm. on the eastern uh, seaboard, 
But a real phenomenon was 20-year-olds moving back home. Uh, okay. And so, yes, parents were now sort of saying, oh, okay, we're empty nesters. No, we're actually not. We've got, so especially if they're at university or something like that, or they just could not afford the rent anymore, the mm. option was basically, especially if they lost their job, uh, was to move back home. So there was all these sort of things going on. And I, yeah, personally, I loved it. Uh, daughter's still at home. <laughs> and I know this is not going to last, so I'm going to enjoy it. But it yeah. was definitely, you know, got 20-year-old daughters, you know, the house becomes very crowded very quickly. <laughs> and so it has its own uh, side effects. But on the other side of it, uh, you're spending more time with your parents because they're living longer and mm. and they're healthy. But there does come to a point when your parents are in their 80s and, and you know, for, for a lot of elderly pa- parents and a lot of people in their 50s and 60s have experienced this, it just comes to a point when they become far more reliant on you again. Um, mm. You know, whether it's a fall at home, whether they need age, age care, uh, estate planning, um, it's, it's just, it's great that they're living longer, um, but it just comes with its own unique, uh, not problems, but just different perspective on that. You were saying you identify with that demographic because you mm. said, you know, you're, you're in very early 60s, 61. Um, and for me, I, I really enjoy helping people in that demographic because I feel like they've worked really hard all their life and I feel that they deserve to be able to be to be enjoying and doing the things they want to do. So even though I'm not, it's almost like relaying to them like as though they're my parents and how I would want them to not have worry and, and things like that. My first 60-year-old retiree, I did at age 30. So, you know, I had no idea what... Uh, retirement was yeah. uh, or really what that meant to this or how much of an emotional decision it was but I could do all the numbers I could make sure their super yeah. was well I could do to make given the confidence that they had enough to retire so yeah as from an advisor point of view exactly right as long as you've got that empathy and you yeah. obviously got the knowledge which you do have uh, you can help them at that age uh, it was just from my point of view about sure. leaving the advice practice and writing the book and doing the other things. It was just easier for me because that was my own life as well. I'm also curious about how all of this started, right? If we always talk about the journey of how we become interested in money and then how you've actually approached to being an advisor. And you're not just an advisor. You've, you've been very prolific within the financial planning industry and, and very influential as well, Mark. So if we, we take yourself back to when you were not even passionate about financial planning yet, you yep. know, what, what was it about your upbringing that really shaped your view towards money now? Well, it was an interesting start because my father was in the army and, mm. and he was also, you know, I'm old enough that there was uh, Vietnam was around. So he was off uh, overseas. And so I did really see from my sister and I with my mother, how, how hard it was on an in, uh, one income, even though there was so obviously the army income there, mm. uh, but just as a single parent virtually. So I, I definitely, my, I love my childhood, but I suppose my parents, apart from the, my father being away, they were also, when he did come back, they were very arty and not money savvy, mm. if you could put it that way. Okay. And so I could see others going off to, football games and, and all this. And I was not, and even though I love sports, but they, when I could see others and saying, well, they own their own home. Why are they, why don't we own our own home? And so <laughs> to my parents, it just wasn't, it wasn't important. It was just nothing. And there was definitely nothing from there, but it was definitely, I 
my growth, especially my teenage years, I could definitely tell people who had, you know, whether the security mm. of the home or whether the holidays they could go on to what we were doing. And I just, and it was always a bit of, I, I want that. And so I'm going to educate myself on that side of it. So I'm very, very, was very comfortable and loved the education my parents did give me on theatre, on art mm. and all that. But definitely uh, that was my upbringing. I could actually very clearly remember certain examples when I was in my, even 15, we were at a holiday park and um, it sounds silly, but we were in a tent. You know, parents would still go on holidays, but we were in a tent. And I could see the people over there in a caravan. And I thought, you know, <laughs> one day, Dawn, I'd be that rich. I will have that caravan, you know. So it's all in perspective, but it was yeah. always new. There was differences. And I just, that was, there was a bit of a driver there that I didn't get money education. I got a lot of other education, but I wanted to definitely uh, educate myself on that side of it. So you've, you've gone into professionally helping people um, hmm. get better outcomes financially. In terms of your financial planning career, it's been varied in terms of the journey that you took as well, Mark, and to the yes. point that you've come to, to this now where you've, you've launched a book called The Money Sandwich. There's a podcast called The Money Sandwich. You've got a website that has resources around that as well. How, how did all of that happen to lead you where you are right now? I've been, I was a financial advisor for 30 years or over 30 years. And definitely uh, I was helping right at the beginning. I was helping people of all types, salaries, uh, situations, but the, probably the last 10 years, and you know this hmm. as well, we had this comp, uh, compliance regulation, red tape has just doubled, triddled, quadrupled. And um, to a point that a 10-page report is now a 70-page report. Okay. And I was probably, so by the last five, 10 years, it was a very frustrating thing. And as I said, I was, well, I was involved with the associations, dealing with governments and dealing with politicians. And in the end, I just realized I was hitting my head up against the wall. No, they didn't want to make it just for the rich, but they were providing so much red tape. It really was becoming, not for the rich, but it was becoming very, very expensive. And I just realized there's 70, 80% of the population population out there that couldn't afford traditional financial advice. And, um, and I know definitely if you've got age on your side, there are efficiencies, there is technology coming in there uh, so that it will become, I hope, a lower cost uh, for people. But right at this point in my time, and I want mm. one last big challenge, I just thought, no, if I'm going to do it now, I should leave my advisor practice and see how I can help the many rather than the few. A number of us feel that um, a, a lot of people have been priced out of being able to get financial advice. So, you know, we, we can help a set population, uh, but I'm seeing a growing number of advisors, you know, branching out into other ways of helping the community, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's their seminars or podcasts or, or books. Um, I think it's, it's looking at how we can give back differently. Someone like you is a great example, Mark, of how we can think differently of how we can give back to community uh, because we're having to kind of change the way that we do things now, right? I think we Absolutely. financial advisors love giving back, <laughs> but we have to be practical with how we do it as well. The, the money sandwich itself, there seems to be sure. a few layers there yes. of how people can access information. Okay. Um, probably just first the overview is that, yes, definitely I wanted to be able to provide a lower cost solution. And, and 
it's not sort of saying this is an alternative to advice, but if you can't afford advice or you're not, not quite sure of what and how an advisor can help you, this is a good first step or an interim mm. step. Because yeah. throughout, um, throughout the book, throughout the website, I absolutely say, um, yes, this can help you and this can explain such and such around debt or, yeah. or superannuation. But now you realize how complicated it is. This is what the value of an advisor can help you on this, yes. on this journey. So it's very pro-advice, but I just understand you just need that first step or maybe a lower costing step to get into this. Um, but it, it really struck me from, uh, I was doing research when I was, was doing the book and it came to me that ASFA and APRA are the two big regulatory bodies, in yes. the superannuation and the Prudential Regulatory Authority. And they do their own numbers. And ASFA has come out and said that the average retiree at 67, sorry, average couple at 67 needs 640,000 mm. to have a comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. Bit of a pension, but that's what they absolutely, and they've done the numbers on electricity, utility, and everything else, 640,000. But then when you look at APRA, they've actually done the numbers on what people at 67 or 65 actually have. And that's only mm -hmm. 420,000. Okay. So and that's the middle, that's the median. And so the median is 420,000 uh, for a couple. So that's already 200,000 less than what the government says is a comfortable retirement. And if English is a second language, it's actually lower. Again, it's another 100,000 mm -hmm. lower than that. So there's the overview. I said, we need to do this better. Yes. Uh, people who are in their uh, last period before they are going to retire really aren't going to get much of a chance. Once they stop work, they can't actually contribute to super anymore. So it's about helping people understand how they can get their money working harder for them. Mm. So that 420000 comes up to at least 640000 yeah, and those are important stats, very important stats. And I find that, um, you know, when you're sometimes speaking to people first time about retirement and what they might need in retirement income, most people don't know. Um, so there is a resource that, that I, I refer clients to quite often is, is the ASFA retirement standard and it is telling them, okay, this gives you an idea on the very first point. If you're trying to develop an idea about retirement and you think it's so far away, this will give you a sense of what it may look like. The important thing is knowing the figure that you're aiming for. So then this, this superannuation figure is not this pointless numerical value that, that is just there on your statement. You need to know what it means. What, what would you suggest the conversations parents need to have with their children now so that they are set up and not having to worry about anything? Okay. Uh, just an excellent question because it really is. I am concerned about the millennials and X, XYs mm. uh, and, and just sort of just Finishing off your previous question, yeah. the actual website drilling down has newsletters, has articles, has calculators, all free. Yeah. It's all there just for people to go on there if they want to actually work out how to pay off their credit card, pay off their mortgage, how they can put their super in there. It's just there. It's just there as a free resource just because I just wanted to be able to do that mm. and all general information. So there's no advice there. And some of that information does definitely relate to um, the children of mm. my generation and because and I'm sure you've had it when couples are sitting in front of you Dawn and the husband might say oh okay I just want to have enough you know I want a million dollars when I retire or I want to have reached this 100,000 a year in retirement but a lot of times when you ask the mother and they just say our biggest concern is how is how are our adult children ever going to get a head start a financial head start how are they mm. ever going to afford to buy in a major city um, and the stats are basically saying that 
during COVID, three and a half million Australians, had, working Australians, had to take out their 10,000 out of their super because mm. they didn't have enough. So saving is a big one. They've got, they need at least three months worth of uh, um, salary as a nest egg. That's the number one thing. And what I do is, and I taught my children and their friends, is that just pay yourself first. It's mm. just an age-old, yes. true tried money uh, tip is that when you get paid, whether you get paid monthly or weekly, the first expense or the first bill is you. Mm. Uh, you're the most important. So make sure you save because at the end of the month, you'll never have any money left over. Uh, the second thing is you really do need to understand that for their superannuation, they should basically, and this is not advice, there's just, <laughs> but if anyone who, is, who has more than 10 years, shares have been the best performing asset class gets property, term deposits, bonds, and so on, cash. So if your super is obviously in much longer than a 10-year time frame, why wouldn't you get the highest performing area? And, and you go to whatever super fund it is, and they, on their statement, will show you from right from cash, moderate, balanced, growth to high growth, what their returns have been over 10 years. Always look mm-hmm. at seven to 10 years. And their highest returning one is at least earning 3 or 4% on average over a 10-year period. Well, for a 25-year-old who's got another 40 years, that's going to triple or quadruple his superannuation just by changing from balanced mm. to high growth. Uh, just because you're going to have your money working harder for you, and that's what we mean by when getting your money working harder for you, because shares over time, not short-term, has always been the best. So, yeah, they're the, probably the three. Probably... Uh, Oh, the, the two, third one probably is the wealthy have been teaching their kids about good debt, mm. using debt to buy really good income-producing assets like property, investment yeah. properties. Uh, yeah, not by using debt to buy lifestyle reasons. And 25-year-olds already have, on average, $5,000 credit card debt. So yes. you know, get them to understand debt is a good thing, but only when you're putting it against good income-producing assets. Uh, which will provide uh, income later on. And the, probably the last thing I teach 25-year-olds is you've got to give back. You're a perfect example of doing all the things you do to give back. But if you have a 25-year-old and say, yep, financially, you get all those things right, now you absolutely need to also give back. You've been put on this earth to serve. Um, you know, life doesn't owe you anything. And you need to be go out there and help your fellow human being. And if you can get that across to 20-year-olds, all those financially, they'll be fine. And hopefully they give back in whatever way they do to the community. Thanks for those tips, Mark. And I like no how you've li- likened me to a 25-year-old. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Looking good, Dawn. <laughs> oh, because, yeah, I, you know, my, my research is based around Generation Z and, and superannuation. So I've, I've kind of taken it from a different end on my non-advising role because I feel like my passion is helping retirees um, achieve yes. their goals as an advisor. But like you said, not everybody can have our help. And I feel that with younger people, they've actually got the easiest journey if they just start early enough. They don't have to try as hard. Like I think like it's so easy. It's just so you just care for like maybe two hours of investment of your time maybe to understand what you've set up. And it's basically a, um, you know, a, a, a set and forget kind of, of strategy. That really important tips because it's, it's creating savings from an early age, understanding what emergency funds are, um, being able to squirrel away that money into that retirement pot of funds. You know, um, like I told my kids, 
you're going to be salary sacrificing. I don't care if you want to do it or not. That's what's going to happen. You know, they may not know yet, but I'm setting the expectation now. And I told their friends as well, I'm going to have all your friends in a group here and we're just going to go through your statements together. Um, And then, um, you know, in in terms of the investment allocation, that's that's an interesting one um, that I've been talking to my supervisors about. And they kind of go, oh, but why, why do... Why do super funds put them in that selection? I said, well, they have to have a default selection and it's the trustees' um, kind of decision about what they're doing for that fund overall. Mm. Um, But even in something like that, because your perspective of a financial advisor is important. You know, sometimes we have a lot of academic view on on all these things. But as an advisor, you've seen it actually working in real life. I mean, what do you feel about then the default option with investments, is there a better way that super funds could do it where it's better aligned to the age? Or yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and this is part of my uh, what I really am passionate about and want to and, and like to talk about because I call it the Goldilocks syndrome. Mm. And uh, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's right there, happy in the middle. And even if an advisor does a risk profile and they say the questions are one to five, and number one is or do you want to risk losing all your money or you want to have no loss? Oh, I'm happy to be in somewhere in between. So even an advisor's hands are a bit tied that their risk profiles, mm. if, if someone who doesn't understand uh, investment, they will always usually go to the middle option. So then they'll yes. be balanced. And so the government especially came after the 2008 global financial crisis. They wanted to set up a system where, okay, the problems are only ever when there's a share market crash once or twice every 10 years. Mm. and But when it does happen, you know, you see the headlines, the world's yes. ending and all that, and the government's, you see people, oh, I'll never be able to retire and all this. So it was really the default system was built. Let's pick a nice middle option and we'll even call it balanced, okay. the balanced fund, so that it's not too risky, it's not too conservative. But from an investment point of view, to me, it's just wrong it should have been education that people understand, okay, there is going to be a share market drop once every 10 years. Say. Yes. Um, it's the other nine years of a really good re- income and returns. And as long as the average over 10 years and say the balance funds earn on average nine or 10% on a balance fund for a growth or high growth, it's been 13%. So you've missed out on 3% on average over 10 years. And that's what people need to understand uh, and understand that, the reason the difference is it's just a higher percentage in shares, which are Australian mm-hmm. shares and overseas shares. But these aren't risky shares. These are your banks. This is your Telstra, your Qantas. So, but people, exactly what you said, if they spent two hours, knowledge is power. If they gave a bit of understanding, and this is what advisors do help their clients, yeah. um, they understand this, what's this asset allocation strategy. Um, and it's understanding that if you get your asset allocation right, it's not about timing the market or mm. extra contributions. It's about getting your asset allocation right. And if you get that right, you'll be fine. So I wish the government spent more time on the education side yes. of getting people to understand about this, about mm. shares and this. And it's not a bad word that, you know, the share markets, um, it sells newspapers, you know. And I always listen to Warren Buffett who said, if the sh- if you walked into an elevator and it was, it didn't say up or down, it said saw or plummet you wouldn't get into that lift and all it does is still up and down it's just an emotional term and that's what they say about the share market it's not the share market's up or down it's the share market plummeting or the share market soaring and 
So I just think there's just needs, if we can get the education out there, people gain that knowledge, people will be far more comfortable not to be in the balance fund, mm. to be in a higher percentage of shares, so the growth or high growth, as long as they've got a long-term view. And and this is why um, with with my research, um, you know, I'm in the early stages as well. So I've, I've done a first round of um, collecting data from generations that uh, cohort that had superannuation. Um, and I must say that the the results are not representative because they're mostly university students that actually responded. Um, they didn't actually exhibit uh, cynicism for the system. It was more of the fact that, well, people don't really talk about it. You know, um, they, yeah. they feel not really supported at school. They, they didn't really feel, they thought the task was important about opening up the super fund, but they didn't actually feel ready for that, that really quite a significant significant decision, right? Especially now with super stapling. Essentially, mm. when they open up their first account, they're making a very, very, very long-term decision they with are. everything that's there. Mm. Mm. So in, in, in terms of that, I kind of go, um, they rated actually financial advisors and accountants as number one for where they would, they would get their superannuation uh, guidance from. Um, and I think, okay, pricing, financial advisors have been priced out. How are they going to help young people? Number two was parents. Um, so you've, you've given some tips of what parents can do, but do you fear that some of the cynicism in that generation of people in their forties and fifties about the superannuation system is like a blockage for them actually encouraging their own children? Like they're, they've, they've put a barrier in place with their own superannuation engagement and that might flow through to their kids as well. Yeah. And I think this is, yeah, it is absolutely a problem. Because the government can't help itself. It keeps tinkering with super. So people, whenever you speak to people about super for the first time or you're at a dinner party yeah. around the water coolers type of thing, people just say, oh, I don't trust super. Yeah. I'll, I'll never get it when I retire. And, and that's just, again, education. Um, so we need to be, as a profession, uh, better at edu- educating. The government needs to be better. But I, I keep coming down to when I tell people, this one thing, um, at the end of the day, government can't afford social security pensions mm. long-term. Yes. Uh, if you look at an example of Japan, where they now have virtually 60% retirees, uh, Australia is around 35, 40%, uh, I think high 30s in the amount of um People who retire, but that's only that's increasing, especially as we're all getting older. We're living better, um, and so the government can't afford to think of well. All these people are going to get to social security, so they absolutely need to make sure superannuation stays attractive, yep. because uh, otherwise they know they won't be able to afford to pay you. And so, so I think that should for most people think well that makes sense. So mm. I get they tinkering with it. They want to add taxes or change the taxes but at the end of the day they still must make make it attractive enough mm. and at the end of the day if you're over 60 and retired it's all tax free so it's that's the number one benefit but uh and retired i should say um they've got to make it attractive because they can't pay it long term yeah. so yes i i think from that point of view yeah we're pretty safe superannuation is going to be around but it's a matter of educating people on that because unless you see it or do it every day, you don't know these things. Yes, it's right. It's an incredibly complex system. 
Mm. Um, and looking, reading through the Productivity Commission report, um, there, there were all these different things they've identified, right? And and they have talked in, in other papers as well is that the for the system to be efficient, you need to have active participants. Um, but why, where, what I kind of see from the government's uh, proposals of trying to improve the system is that they're trying to work more on the passive side. Like, okay, let's increase the, the default. Let, let's make the default conditions better. Like, it's almost like they are, they find it too hard to get people to be actively involved in super. It's just too, too hard basket. Yeah. So they are, they're going things like, okay, let's remove multiple super funds with super stapling. Let's try and make it uh, more transparent about, you know, returns and things like that. Um, but the issue might be that if people are not engaged in the first place, they're not looking at the other resources to become more interested. Um, I mean, what what would your, if you could put on a government hat, right? And, and go, okay, if you had the opportunity to make people more active in their journey, what do you think is a practical thing that can be done? Well, I think um, because I have the Money Smart website and mm. it's just unfortunate, it's a great website, but very few people know about it or yes. use it. Um, so I still think, I still think they need to make it from an employer point of view, an attractive proposition that this is an employee benefit. Mm. Uh, and if they made an incentive somehow, because you know employers are, are getting to a point where they just see it as a 10, 10 or 10 percent tax and they've just got to pay it. So, yep, I'll do this because government tells me I'll go do it. I don't like doing it, but I'll do it. Um, whereas if there was some benefit like for example allowing financial advisors to come in there and coach their yes. staff and then talk to them and explain that and there were some incentives to do that or how mm-hmm. they could be paid uh you would get that because people would actually be able to talk to have someone to talk to uh they get their statement okay what does this actually all mean what's all this information if they had someone they could talk to and employers were incentivized to actually get people to come in there and talk to their staff because at the end of the day apart from your own home and less and less people are buying their own home this is going to be their biggest asset they will own for the yes. average person with compulsory superannuation um you know it's, there's a few trillion dollars sitting there in superannuation funds that are going to be transferred to individuals to to have as their retirement income so understanding about it getting that knowledge but I also think the government could do so much more in actually helping educate people on, as we're talking about the asset allocation, mm. understanding how to get the best returns. Um, and I just think, yeah, but it, to me, it comes down, if you can get the, if the government goes to the individual, that'll be very hard to do. But if the government can go to the employer that is paying the tenor, uh, the superannuation guarantee, and in some way that way, I think there is there's ways there to mm. get coaching and education um, through the employee benefits of, a, of any corporate, major corporate. I, I, I like that idea because it's I, I kind of identified as well that it should be the point at when they have to set up their superannuation fund. If I'm even mm. thinking of a young person, the point at where they set up their first fund, they need to either be attending a coaching session or doing something online that demonstrates their understanding Absolutely. before the fund is actually open. Because I, I have a feeling right now it's just an afterthought. It's one of the forms that gets thrown in front of somebody and they fill it in without even knowing. Yeah, <laughs> it's just absolutely. like it's it's more about the job and and maybe earning the money and starting that. It's not that yeah. um and and I think you've just added 
uh, like more thought around it as you're really talking about, about the support that an employee can have even not at their first fund, they might have more questions later on. And if that resource is available to them, that helps that mm. engagement that's there. Um, mm. So I'm liking that, Mark. I'm liking that. You can definitely tell you've had a lot of robust discussions <laughs> with yes, government yes, entities. Just trying to get that through, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but you can understand also why a 20-year-old is not thinking about retirement. Yeah. And so why are they thinking about their super? But you know, it also it has insurance benefits. So there yeah. is reasons, but as exactly as you said before, if you get that right and just then you can set and forget, yes. uh, you just need to get it right that at that age and then you know you'll get oh. reap the benefits over the years you can be so lazy with it that's the thing Absolutely. like i enjoy it because you can be so lazy if you just mm. kind of put it in the right way yeah. it just sets itself there's a lot of work to do around various areas in supporting people um you know your focus is really helping people um in that sandwich generation uh, i'm trying to on my community side maybe start with people who are younger and get them engaged mm. that way um so you brought up something around insurance, right? Mm. How does insurance impact the insurance? You know how you said the sandwich generation has, yeah. they're in between two generations. How does lack of insurance for that, that, that part of the sandwich, <laughs> the, that yeah. part of the bread on the left, not having oh, enough sorry, insurance? For, for the children, the adult children? For the children, correct. Yeah, okay. Because insurance, is, people seem to downplay the need for insurance. How is that affecting our, our beautiful sandwich generation? Yes, I... It has an. It's an interesting phenomenon because it's definitely the similar uh, that you know, especially a lot of mothers and fathers, I should say, as well, see their twenty twenty five year old children or or mm. in, started work uh, or getting married, starting to have families, and they don't have a safety net. Any good financial plan has to have a safety net, uh, and it. It makes sense for people to say, well, I wouldn't buy a car without getting my car insurance. I wouldn't have a home yeah. and get a home and contents insurance. But you don't think about yourself. And, you know, you're the biggest asset for you to actually earn income. Yeah. So it makes sense for you to be insured, and especially if you've got responsibilities, married, children, or debt. And so I, I definitely think it's really important. It's not something I get 20, 25, 30-year-olds who feel like they're maybe bulletproof. Be correct. Um, but it's... <laughs> There was actually some very interesting thing only in the last week down in Melbourne. There was a whole movement of entertainers out there. I think Daryl Braithwaite was one of the singers to a group there. And it was just really interesting because what they were trying to bring uh, um, information about was people in their 20s getting cancer. Mm. Because people don't think of it as a 20-year-old no. in their 20s to get cancer. Uh, it's, it's an old person's disease. No, there are people who still... Uh, have traumas, who have, unfortunately, have car accidents. Uh, and anyone who has sons know that they feel like they're indestructible and we all mm. worry about when they get behind cars uh, in the first few years. So all those sort of things, having a good safety net of insurance is just part of growing up and mm. you just need to do it. One of the things I have when we're talking about the sandwich generations, I talk to and say this exact same conversation to someone who uh, in their 50s and 60s and they say, yeah, I feel like that. Well, I say, well, you can pay for it. Yeah. If you don't, if you think it is, you know, maybe True. some for trauma, you know, you've got the funds, your children don't, they're struggling, you know, they're especially yeah. uh, lower salaries and all the responsibilities they may have. Um, well, maybe for the first couple of years, you can, you can kick that off for them and pay for that. And then they eventually take it over. Um, we talk about trauma and getting it at level premiums. Yeah. So they get it at a 
it's at a very low cost. And you only have to, unfortunately, and I have gone to a 29-year-old's funeral mm. from brain cancer. So yeah. it does happen. And I just am very, very convinced. And if, an, if, if the sandwich generation parent can actually help their children, a lot of them do that for health insurance as well. You know, yes. get them to do that. Um, it's a great thing to get something like trauma insurance, which covers them for, you know, as you know, all the, yeah. the heart cancer, stroke, and you know, twenty-seven other trauma type conditions. Um, it's great. It's a great thing because they can still get life and the total and permanent disablement TPD insurance through their super fund and yeah. having their super fund. And what I say is, if you get your super fund invested correctly and it's earning more interest, it'll pay for your insurance. Yeah. No, but so, but that's for, yeah. The, the, I think those are the yeah, important things. Mm. It feels almost like they're missing conversations that are are happening along the lines of the generations as well. Mm. You know, sometimes it gets skipped and it it almost needs someone to initiate that conversation. Um, because when you see someone that's gone through something, it's very hard to unwind the financial impact of being underinsured or or being exposed. It would have been nice to go oh, if they only had a had the time to plan this out properly, that could be a different outcome. Um, if we're looking on the other spectrum of how prepared we are before we move to the sandwich generation themselves, how prepared are people around the aged care conversation? Have you found that people actually understand what's involved to take someone through the aged care process, how much it's going to cost and things like that? No, I think yeah. that's one of the biggest shocks um, and it was happening. It happened to us. Uh, you know, I'm in. I'm a financial advisor, and, I, and it still happened to us. I was really surprised of how much uh, work is involved uh, for people in their fifties and sixties with their elderly parents when they have to have that. And I even call it the conversation where having that because when they're healthy, they don't want to have the conversation. You know? Yes. Uh, and where you're going to have to take me out of this house in a box is often mm. a response. But it really is good. And this is where sometimes a financial advisor who can be that third party, not be emotional about this conversation, uh, can help step into the breach there because people my age are looking at their parents and they need to speak to someone, even if it's not you, they're not feeling comfortable for whatever reason, yeah. uh, having someone else. And I do think the next 10 years, as I said, because people are living longer, so people are living into the late 80s and 90s, especially women, uh, and having an aged care specialist or an estate planning specialist is just from a financial advisor, it's just a necessity because their clients mm. will face that. And if it's their parents uh, who will need that help, and if you can actually provide that service to your client, um, that's that's a great value add because I've seen what aged care specialists, and there are advisors, mm. and you would know them as well, who can actually help people when it gets there because it is a minefield when it gets, when you have to, and a lot of times it's just sprung on you. you know, unfortunately, they've fallen down, uh, broken a hip, and the doctor yes. just says to them, they're not going home. You need to find a new home. You need to find an aged care home for them now. Yes. Uh, and just to throw in that. And so having a, uh, knowing that there is actually people out there that can help you uh, is, is a, a great and valuable resource. I find as well that um, even with retirement conversations, um, People have not factored, you know how we talked about 640 as the capital amount yes. that um, would generate the income for a comfortable retirement. I don't think people have necessarily factored in the aged care bond, the, the facility bond, if they mm -hmm. are intending on staying in their own house 
you know, because Absolutely. like, and the thing is that they, they're almost like forced to make a decision at that point, very significant decisions that you're trying to make. Do you stay in the mm. family home? Do you not stay in the family home? You know, it's hard enough someone's going into care. Do you think that people should be setting aside money for a bond necessarily if they're thinking about the overall retirement capital expense that they're looking at? I, Because I, I, I do agree with you. You should actually be looking at that and, and looking at the bond. Yeah. But I just think the adult child can at least get across to the parents yeah. that they need to start this conversation. Yes. And need to talk to, a, say, a specialist or, or that. Um, that person can then talk to them about, as you said, about the bond mm-hmm. and all the and, and a range of other things. Because I because I think they're all really important, but it's very hard for a, a, an adult child or someone in their 50s and 60s to actually get the knowledge on this to then explain it to their parents and then to, for them to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I, for me, uh, from if I'm the adult child, I want to at least know, well, what are your thoughts about the home? Yeah. Uh, are you happy to sell if that comes the case? If yes. you're not going to have to sell here, as exactly as you said, you're going to need to come up with the bond. So yes. as long as you can have that, because even for, I've seen situations where there's two or three in the family, um, brothers and sisters who are all in their 50s and 60s, and they're having a conversation with the parent about, oh, okay, exactly mm. this. Are you, what if you need aged care? What are you looking for in aged care? Do you want it near the beach? All these other things. And you may have to sell the home. And then one of those adult children says, you're not seeing the home. I always expected to get the home. I, yes. I grew up in this house. I want to live in this house. And you're not, I'm not going to ever let you sell this house. Yeah. So it it actually helps to get those bigger pictures conversation started. Yes. Uh, and then once they sort of get comfortable with that and the aged care is on that, well, I do think, yeah, getting a specialist involved who can mm-hmm. actually take them step by step about what the things they need to know, exactly what you're talking about, uh, is important. And I just think. A lot of people don't think there is actually help out there uh, and they've got to do it on their own. And that's definitely not the case. What you're saying that is not necessarily about particularly particular strategies as such. It's about having a conversation early enough so everybody's on the same page or you can yes. at least preempt what needs to happen. Um, you know, because, um, for example, someone that, that came to see me, um, their partner went in on the low means into aged care. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they downsize the house, then they're not on low means anymore. And then the aged care cost goes up and then, but she needs money to live off, you know? So then do they consider like suddenly the, the the kind of options to do are endless and overwhelming. Um, And, and if I think people had that benefit of time, like you're talking about time to just sit down as a family and talk about it, then you're not feeling like you're being pushed in the corner to just choose one thing. You know, it's, it's about about really having the time to, to think it through. Now I'm, I'm going to, go to the middle now we're going to go to the ham in the sandwich (laughs) yeah yeah, so if if um a demographic that that we hear a lot about you're the single women above 55 um very vulnerable group of people in australia um and the fastest growing demographic of people living in homelessness in australia um you know how would you i guess i wouldn't say have a magic wand because that's if, if you could change the way our system works um, of how these women actually come through the system, what what would you want to change to give them a different outcome? You know, whether it's a system, whether it's how they pass through life stages, what what could be what could be changed now to help to have a different outcome for them? Uh, uh, this is really important, and uh, mm. uh, and 
as you said, it's it's a growing uh, demographic, fast growing mm-hmm. demographic for homelessness. For yeah. in, for and I just uh, and just to give you an idea, the last twelve months before I stopped being an advisor and say, oh, if I just say take ten new clients, five of them were single mm. uh, through divorce or um, uh, being widows, and it. I was just, it was just so surprising. And, and as I said, and we're, this is why it's so important to, to get this right, because I was, I was seeing uh, women who actually had significant assets or had been left significant assets. So, and yet they still had major anxieties because especially this age group, traditionally, uh, especially if they took time off for looking after kids, it was the husband who did the finances. Yes. And, I, and I really liked the XYs and millennials uh, women uh, uh, are definitely far more um, interested in the finances and money side. So that's that's a great thing. But definitely this age group, um, they weren't. And so in the in the main, and so I just see that they really do struggle. That yes, even if they've been left significant assets, they still worry about well, what do I do with it? Mm. Um, I can't blow all this money because I've been left this and it's got to last me my lifetime. And I'm also thinking about inheritances for my children and all yes. these other things. So anxiety is a big key in this, in, uh, in causing stress for this. And yeah, as you said, and even if you don't have significant assets, it's even more of a problem. So I've got a sort of a solution. Okay. <laughs> and to me, I think uh, lawyers and financial advisors have traditionally not worked well together. Um, mm. It's just not accountants and financial advisors, yes, but I do think that triangle of accountants, lawyers, and financial advisors should do better um, because after a divorce, if we're just talking about a divorce, mm. the person's left to their own devices. Yep, I've done my job. You've got this amount. We've split the the, uh, the estate in half, and you go off now and just do your own thing. The that lawyer should have some mechanism that, okay, you've been left with 200,000, 2 million, whatever the figure yeah. is, what to do with it. Here is a course. Here is a person. Yes. Here is a coach. Here is some financial advice to take you to the next step, even if it's just to talk to you for an hour about mm. this. Because um, the first thing I usually talk to them is saying, you've got time. Most of them think, are getting really anxious oh, and if yeah. you can just at least take away that anxious no take a break um you've gone through this divorce or you've gone through um the lo- loss of a loved one take some time yes don't you've yes okay if the money sits in a bank for six months it sits in a bank for six mm. months but you need to get some balance back in your life you need to just start to relax and and if you can just you can feel you can see them just visibly breathe out you know yeah. the shoulders relax a bit and i felt feel like if lawyers and financial advisors could get together so that there was some mechanism so that if after divorce or some situation, major life event happens, that they can help them. Mm. Because the same thing happens if it's a if they lose their husband, um, they've got to still go through a lawyer for their estate. So yes. it's if there was some mechanism that uh, paired advisors up there to financial um, to lawyers so they're just not, well, okay, I've done my part. I've split the assets. You're on your own. Yeah. I think that would just be so, uh, so much help. But I just do really think uh, women in their fifties and sixties just do really need to realize they've got time. Mm. And the second thing is there is help. There yeah. really is help. You do not need to do it on your own. And a lot of 
uh, women. And just as I said, because they haven't, you know, they've raised children. They've done an amazing job in whatever possible career or going back to the work. Uh, just because they didn't look after the finances, it's not something embarrassing that they feel, well, I should know this. Mm. Um, if the best tennis player in the world still needs a coach, um, it's, there's nothing problem with you going out there and getting help and not having to think you need to do this all on your own. Yeah. Um, and yet a lot of women, I think, seem to feel embarrassed. They should know this and they don't and just and struggle through when they really should just seek out help. The sooner you feel safe to engage in the conversation about your finances, the better. Um, and, um, you know, that thing about time was also echoed by a family lawyer that um, that I interviewed as well. And she just says that sometimes the best thing she can do for a client is give them more time because when people yeah. are backed into the corner in a highly emotional state, they can't, they can't make good decisions, no. you know. So sometimes time can be the best thing you give someone so that they can like breathe out and think about uh, what they want. Um, and I think this demographic uh, as well, um, like you're right, if, if help can come in sooner to help them out with guiding their way forward, um, I think that would be a long way. I think, you know, if, if we can look at the lessons of the women in that age group now, we should be really having honest discussions with women who are younger um, because I think systematically, mm. um, young women now are on the same route to the women who are currently <laughs> in this Absolutely. sport. Absolutely. Um, but luckily, you know, and exactly what you're doing, and there's other yeah. uh, really fabulous women out there just doing podcasts and writing books and newsletters. So there is so much help if you actually want to just go look. You know, yeah. you don't need a uh, 61 year old grey haired man telling you what to do. There are plenty of wonderful women out there who can absolutely help you and get you started and know that there is somewhere to turn to. But um, uh, yeah, we, we just need to do better in this, this demographic. It's just, it's just not good enough. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I must say it is it was so enjoyable just getting your breadth of knowledge on the topic, I think, because your perspective uh, covers you know what what your experience has been dealing with with government in advocacy as well as research for your your own book. it's It's been very a very well thought out um, <laughs> contribution. Really enjoyed it so much. Thank you for coming on this podcast. Uh, Donna, pleasure. Subscribe now to be notified of new episodes. Let's change how the story ends. The information discussed during this episode includes strategies that are general in nature. As everyone's situation is different and the information discussed does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs, you should always seek personal advice with regard to your own personal circumstances.